Now entering Nerdist.com. Here we go. Last live Nerdist Writers panels of the year are coming up in October and November. Los Angeles, October 15th at CBS Radford Studio. Uh, with CBS Studio all-star showrunners, including Rob Doherty of Elementary, Aileen Brush McKenna of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Craig Sweeney of Limitless, and our old pal Jenny Snyder-Ehrman, the showrunner of Jane the Virgin. This should be a really fun time. It's hosted at CBS, but you can get tickets. They're really cheap, only $5. Uh, hope you can join us on October 15th. If not, Los Angeles, October 18th at Meltdown, celebrating Hulu's new show, Casual, with director Jason Reitman, uh, who, of course, directed Juno, Young Adult, some other films, uh, our old friend Liz Tiglar, the creator of Life Unexpected, uh, and all the folks behind Casual will also be screening episodes you have never seen before. Uh, so join us on the 18th for that, Los Angeles. And finally, Boston, November 14th at Brookline Booksmith with Joe Hill. This was rescheduled from last month. Uh, we're finally going to do this. Uh, Joe is a terrific writer and a great guy. It should be a fun conversation. Uh, and that benefits 826 Boston. All the others benefit 826 LA. Hope you can join us. For details, go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. Writerspanel.tumblr.com. That's where I'll put all of the information as well as more information and other stuff. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. I'm also a television writer myself, having written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, uh, DreamWorks, Puss in Boots, and currently FX's new series, Cassius and Clay. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, and let me know who you'd like to see on this show. I'm always looking for new ideas for guests, and you can always find out about live Nerdist Writers Panels. Go to writerspanel.tumblr.com. As ever, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes, and thanks for listening. Uh, why don't you guys introduce yourselves so the listener can know who sounds like what? Um, this is what I sound like. Uh, I'm Jack Amiel. I'm Michael Begler. Thank you guys for being here. Um, congratulations on the show, Thank by the you. way. It is, it's an interesting show in the current landscape, I think. Um, I, I have had to think a lot about TV lately. <laughs> Why? Because there's only a few shows? Yeah. All of a sudden, there's nothing on. No, no. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a show that... Well, listen, let's, let's go back. Uh, I want to hear about how the show began. Um, why this show? Why is this a show that you had to make? Uh, and and what was the process of making it? I'm sure you've told us. Well, no, times. we had, we had mortgages that were really <laughs> big, um, and we had to make this show. No, I, I think there was a lot of things that went into it. One is that TV was getting so exciting, mm -hmm. so I think we were losing our mojo on sort of the film world, and everything was really a derby. And while we really had had a lovely ten years or so in in film, and it had given us a one, you know, both of us. You know, Michael's fa you know Michael's family was growing at the time. Um, my kids were sort of in a in a different place, and so we we had this great life in film, and we just kind of looked around and said, I, I don't want to do this anymore, and I don't think anyone wants to make the movies we make anyway. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we 
we our conversations kept turning to film uh, to TV all the time. I'd be like, I'm watching this. I'm watching. Have you seen this? Have you seen that? And Michael had his favorite shows. So there were, immediately was that thing. But we weren't the guys who anybody thought, oh, you're the no, not even remotely. No, I mean we were. I mean. As probably everybody, if you go on IMDb and you read our credits, it's like, I mean, come on, it's The Shaggy Dog and The Prince and Me and Tony Danza's show and a bunch of sure. other sitcoms. And um, In our defense, we had lovely homes. Um, <laughs> and, oh, absolutely. I don't think anybody in the business, you know, attributes anything to stuff you work on. Right. You know, I like, mean, you work because work you want to work. Right. You work because you want to work. And yeah. every single script we work on is a puzzle. And, I, yeah. you know, I think Jack and I enjoy that aspect of it very And just much. getting stuff made is an unbelievable exactly. feat. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we were inordinately grateful for the career we'd already had. Sure. But, but, what, but what happened were, was we were sort of pigeonholed. We were mm-hmm. seen as the guys who write the family comedy or the romantic comedy. And we weren't, we were not seen in this world at all. And if, if Jack and I had gone out and just pitched it, mm-hmm. people would have been like, oh, that sounds like a really cool show, but you're not the guys. This is what I was wondering about. Yeah. So yeah. we, right away, um, we decided if we're going to do this, we just have to do it. Because if we're going to change perception, we have to, we have to change the perception. Mm-hmm. We have to write it and show that, that this is something that we're capable of doing. Um, let, me, let me stop you here, and I apologize. I'm going to no. interrupt a lot because I want to kind of dig in on a few things. But No, no, you even, clearly weren't <laughs> raised well. Um, let me go back a, a step here and talk about this story in this world in particular Mm -hmm. Um, even before the decision to write the script Mm -hmm. why this story why this world what what drew you guys to it well it it really started with my own illness (laughs) i mean it really started that i was having some medical issues i mean hey i had some intestinal problems and uh um and uh, it's why we no longer work in the same room exactly in the same state exactly (laughs) um and i but and i was like i i literally spent years trying to solve my issues and and i i went down all roads i went down the the traditional medicine and i and west and all you know eastern medicine alternative and i was looking for answers for myself And it just made me think about, like, wow, well, in certain areas we've come so far, but in certain areas we, there's, there's, you know, there's not enough known. And so it was really great at times, really frustrating. And then it just dawned on me, like, well, what would I have done 100 years ago? I can, like, go on the web and I can find out all this information, yeah. but 100 plus years ago, what were my options? And so Jack and I just started to talk about that. And then just it really was just out of curiosity um, we went on eBay and we bought a medical textbook, and and that textbook was like reading. That's how I treat my children today. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I will only use those techniques. But but it was really you couldn't put it down. It was like reading like Fifty Shades of mm-hmm. Grey. It was like this amazing piece of material, and so right away that sparked an interest in us in this arena, and then we said, okay, well the medicine is interesting. Let's let's look at. The era. What is the era like? Mm-hmm. And that again, we just started to do a lot of research and just read and read and read. And the more we read, the more we saw that this was a world that was so fascinating and so relevant to everything that was kind of going on in the world today. Mm-hmm. And it really is a kind of like this little tiny doorway that you kind of peer through, and you're like, okay, what's what's going on in here? Mm-hmm. And then as you get deeper and deeper and deeper in. 
suddenly pieces start to come together. So you go, wait a second, this work was being done in Germany when they were learning about this sort of thing, like blood types, but they were also learning this over here and, this, and these things, and you start to become an expert in it after, you know, you, after your 20th or 30th surgical paper from 1900. And thank you, Google, because they're all out there. Um, you, you start to realize, I, I understand this. I understand how much they knew and how much they didn't know. And you start to see, okay, I understand the procedures. I understand the medicine. Now I'm starting to understand the people. And we started learning about the different people in the era. And sometimes uh, there would be a photograph. I sent Michael a photograph of two ambulance drivers standing outside University of Pennsylvania Hospital. And I just sent it to him and said, these guys are on the show. Like, these guys, we've got to, you know, because they looked like guys who wouldn't go help patients. They looked like guys who would create patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and those are the sorts of things. We found out about William Stewart Halstead, and we found out about all the guys at Hopkins, and we started learning about, um, you know, Franklin Mall and, and, and Welch and Osler. And it all became part of a whole that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But the personalities of the doctors, what you started realizing was, okay, if I'm a doctor today and I go in, maybe there's a half a percent chance that the patient won't make, won't make it. Back then, there was a half a percent chance the patient would. And what does that do to your psyche? And so Michael and I just kept talking about, like, how, how, how a doctor faces that brutality yet still makes that first cut on a patient who who was living a minute ago, and there's a very good chance they won't be very mm-hmm. soon. So those pieces started coming in, and then the era really took off for us. How, how did... How long uh, did this conversation go on before you guys actually started beating this thing into shape? And, and at what point did the hospital and the characters start to take shape? Well, I think we, we actually talked about it briefly a few years before we even mm-hmm. got into it and it was one of these things where I was like hey I you know I kind of have this thought and we talked about it but we put it aside we were working on other things and frankly personally I was very intimidated by it I felt like it was a world I at that point knew nothing about and and saw myself in that same sort of category of no these are the things we write um, hmm. and um, and then out of just time and frustration that I said, you know what, we got to do something for ourselves. Let's let's dive in, and we spent, we just sort of went off to our in, to our own corners and did a bunch of research, constantly emailing back and forth articles and surgical papers and books and and so we we did that for like I don't know like a month and a half. We mm-hmm. did like just we just sat and did the research, and then we sort of came together and said, okay, like so now we have this wealth of knowledge. Like how do we now form it? And that actually came together pretty quickly because we had all this background. We could form these these characters. We knew that we knew that we were going to make the Thackeray character the center of the show pretty pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, because it, it, there was just so much great material there. Um, and um, and we knew we wanted to set it in New York. Um, and then so we sort of built it around him and like what would make the most sense. And again, just picking at all the different areas that we were studying that the characters just started to emerge one by one. And there was a sense on our part that this was our, this was, we sort of had a clear field. I mean, yes, the book and movie and play of Ragtime existed, Mm -hmm. but nobody was really doing 1900. And when you would say 1900, people would go, 
oh, uh, Downton Abbey. And you're like, actually, it started in 1912, but really it takes place in the 20s and 30s. And it was, oh, so it's like Gangs of New York. No, Gangs of New York was Civil War era. Remember, they were drafting people. They were drafting immigrants. And you're like, no, the, this is such a, a time and place unto itself. The, it was the beginning of the American century. It was the beginning of um, the Roosevelt presidency is about, to, is about to happen, the first real modern presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1898 was the first time we really sent our troops abroad to do anything. You know, so suddenly we were extending our power around the world. We were the inventors. Suddenly, it wasn't things coming out of Europe. We had the phonograph. We had all these wonderful things. We had Alexander Graham Bell. We had we were electrifying our our country. Um, and every day there was a new invention that was more exciting and thrilling than the next. And it was the first time the world turned their eyes to America. And that's when suddenly giant waves of immigrants showed up in New York. So in in a city of 1.5 million people in 1899. By 1900, 500,000 immigrants had come through Ellis Island, and most had settled in New York. So suddenly, you had this this polyglot. You had you know this 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 Tower of Babel with uh, with with people living on top of each other and in bunk beds, and it was this wonderful, wild, swirling world. And there was a great quote from David McCullough in this documentary I watched, where he said, "It was a time, uh, it was a time where, where no one had self pity." I'm paraphrasing, but it was this idea that no one was self-piteous. No one said, I got to America and I'm not doing well. Damn you, America. Now, some people did go home. But what was so thrilling about it was this idea that however brutal, however filthy, however disease-ridden, these people still felt they were living in the most modern, exciting, thrilling moment in the history of mankind. And it turns out they were. It feels like those thematic elements were part of the conversation built into that first episode. Is that yeah. the case? We wanted I mean, to welcome you. There's, Definitely. There's a, there's like there's just so much you have to do in a pilot. Yes. Right. Uh, and to layer theme on top of it seems uh, almost impossible. I mean, very few shows get away with doing it in a, a, a in a non clumsy way, and you guys did. Uh, how did that start to play in, or or was it just a natural extension of the world? Well, Michael had a wonderful bookend to it, which was the electricity. Mm-hmm. And I think that Michael became really fascinated by electrifying the hospital. And that became a really great through line to hang so many things on, to hang Barrow's, um, uh, you know, larceny and to hang, you know, the problems in the hospital and uh, to hang why they need the Robertsons so much at this moment in time because they're funding the electricity. So and and that this wonderful last moment of the pilot where the lights flicker on, that was Michael. And I think to be able to find that little spine was a wonderful thing to be able to hang our jewelry on. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I, I, I felt that every piece that, that thrilled us was another chance to, to, to build stuff on it so that you had these guys who were, who were working in the basement in the coal rooms. Well, okay, you learn about a coal room, but what else can you do down there? Well, you can smelt. And you learn that these doctors were making their own tools. So now suddenly we could add this element to Thackeray and show it, but also show this dungeon-like hellhole where he's doing it mm-hmm. um, and then bring Algernon down there. Yeah, I think some certain things were just really fortuitous too. Like when we were just doing the research on on the different surgical procedures, to find this this one that Thackeray does at the end with the spinal block, um, 
and then it used cocaine, it just like we felt like, okay, well, this is destiny, mm-hmm. you know, like it just it, it was just amazing how we could find these certain things to line up. And that became like certain that became very important. I think, like Jack said, it's, um, you know, the electricity, how that played in thematically and then how that plays in surgically in, mm-hmm. in the next episode. Mm-hmm. I think that we tried to sort of always find those those ways that we could marry as much to the medical, to the rest of the world. So it didn't seem like you were watching two shows you were mm-hmm. watching, but but it all sort of worked as a piece. Well, you have this unbelievable, and this is a, sort of a production thing, but you have this unbelievable space that acts as this unifying uh, yeah. space, literally, you know, that pulls together the world and the medical and the thematic and the characters and everything. It's really interesting. Yeah, well, when we walked into that surgical theater, we had seen them building it, mm-hmm. and Howard Cummings, who's our brilliant production designer, uh, had showed us, you know, the photos. And we had originally seen, you know, dozens upon yeah. dozens before we even had sent anyone the pilot of of shots of surgical theaters. So we knew what one looked like. We just didn't know what ours was going to look like and that it was going to be epic mm-hmm. and that it was going to be extraordinary and that it was going to be the big top. Um, I, I, I remember writing the words, you know, you know, circus, you can't run away and join the sign using this theme thematic of the circus, but I didn't realize it was going to look like a big top. <laughs> like it really was going to feel like the center ring. Yeah. And so that gave us wonderful things. So we found things like the placenta previa surgery and the idea that, that we wanted to take that and build it over time and see the pressures, the pressures on Christensen in that first scene where he thinks he's got it licked. He's going to save this mother. He's going to save this child. And he's going to do it in front of this audience, and it's going to be a triumph, and it's a disaster. Spoiler alert, you're a year late. Um, but that's, the, that's the, f- the fun and the thrill and the excitement and the sickening aspect that we wanted everyone to understand what these doctors were going through. And Michael had found, I believe, in some literature about a doctor who literally had just blown his brains out after a procedure. Hmm. And, and we just knew that at the end of that sequence... He had to do it. Um, and, and there was something thrilling about saying, these are the stakes. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the patient, it's the doctor. Uh, so let's go back to, you, you guys wrote the script. How mm-hmm. Did that f- first version resemble the pilot that we've seen? It, it did. You know, Jack and I, the way we work, we, I mean, we outline so, in such detail mm-hmm. um, that we're, we're pretty close once we put it down on the page. And, and, and it, it, it very much resembled that. I mean, it really started with that surgery. I, actually, there were a couple things that, that, that shifted in it, but that weren't very, weren't very big. So the, so the main... What you saw is is very much how Christensen killed himself. I think was something we ended up shifting into a bit of more right. of a set piece. Thackeray wasn't in the first surgery in our first draft. Mm-hmm. It was it was he actually is in the opium den. At, he's that we do the surgery. Thackeray was actually at the opium den. He gets waken up and he goes to the funeral and he gives this amazing. Th- yeah, that was our that was our uh, that was our honey trap. That speech <laughs> we knew that whoever whatever actor, you know, read that that yeah. that that. Um, that eulogy. And that eulogy, that really, that first 15 minutes of the show is Welcome to 1900. Mm-hmm. The opium den, the women, the nudity, the sex, the, the, the dirt in the streets, the horses, Chinatown, um, this guy stumbling out, and then this unbelievably brutal surgery, no masks, no gloves, um, all these things that you're looking at going, oh my gosh, this is, this is 
actually, oh my gosh, is probably the least. Yeah, how about, <laughs> holy, how about holy shit? <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker, what's going on here? So, but that was our, our idea of, and then all the way through to Christensen killing himself and then the eulogy, which Clive just, I mean, he crushed it. I mean, we were, we were all sitting there in, in this giant church as he did this extraordinary just job. And, and you're sitting there going, okay, this is something. Like, that's when I knew that, okay, this is something. But he, he was like a boxer, you know. He had, like, he, had his, he had his earbuds on. He's, like, walking around, and he's obviously listening to it. But <laughs> it's like everybody had to stay away from him because it was, like, his big moment. Sure. And he was, and he was great. And that was originally almost two and a half pages. Mm-hmm. And the first yeah, note we ever got fun. from our manager was, it's great. That, 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 that speech has got to be shorter. And I have to say, I'm not good at cutting. I very much enjoy, this, as you can tell, the sound of my own voice or writing. But... I, what I love is that up until the end of that moment was really everybody, this is what 1900 is going to look like. This mm-hmm. is this is not any other hospital show I've ever seen. You're going to see the blood. You're going to see the intestines. You're going to see the gore. You're going to see the reality of it. And what was amazing to me was the end of that scene, uh, Clive's Dr. Thackeray walks out, and he's supposed to have a conversation with Sister Harriet and um, Cornelia. And actually, Barrow is in that moment. And Clive said, you know what? I think the guy's in perpetual motion. Hmm. I think he wouldn't even stop. He's, he's, that, that moment of life is over, and he's flying forward. And we were like, okay, let's write him to fly forward. And that was the moment I, I was like, okay, Clive, Clive really gets it. And this was before we'd shot anything. And he just wanted to fly forward. And we knew, okay, he gets that Thackeray is this guy in perpetual motion. Um, there's a great Teddy Roosevelt quote, which is, black care... Uh, uh, rarely sits behind a rider whose pace is fast enough. And the idea being that your sorrows, your cares, and your woes, if you keep flying forward, they can't catch you. And I really think Thackeray's that guy. But um, back to the, our, the process. So we, we wrote it and, it, um, and we didn't tell anybody we were writing it. Nobody knew that mm-hmm. we were doing They would have this. talked us out of it. Sure. Yeah, they would have told us, no, no, you guys should work on Shaggy Dog 10. Um, and... Um, and then we handed it in, and people really—they were floored. Hmm. And I mean, in, in the best way possible. Um, and so then things moved very quickly. Um, we had a lot of stuff with it too, so yeah, people knew yeah, we knew yeah. what we were talking about. Right. We but, didn't just write the script. It's right. true. I mean, so what kind of material? Um, we put together. Jack, I should, should say, Jack and his son put together. Yeah, a, I didn't know. I didn't know how to put together like a <laughs> like a. PowerPoint or a keynote. So my my I have a, I had, my sons were both like, oh, and and you need a website? Yeah, I was like, well, and you kind of it's like, okay, I can make you one. Like 15 seconds later, sure. my kid was like, here it is. <laughs> um, but we put together a lookbook of what we wanted the characters to look. There's so much great material on the mm-hmm. web. And we uh, wrote a, a six-page uh, sort of essay on what 1900 was, hmm. politically, socially, immigration-wise, in terms of the progressive era, sports. And that was neat because it got people to understand, but then we put all the visuals mm-hmm. of what medicine looked like, what opium dens looked like, what sports looked like, what um, the streets looked like in the poor sections and the wealthy sections, uh, the Jacob Rees photos of how the other half live. And I, and, and I, I, mean, I think we thought, hoped that was catnip to a director. Um, and then we also wrote something else. Right? Well, we wrote seven pages of what the show is, mm-hmm. you know, what we saw as ba- the basic idea of the arc of, of the season. Okay. Um, and um, so we handed them this, you know, this nice little package, and um, and again, they all thought it was 
amazing. And, um, and, and you know, our, our manager, Michael Sugar, um, works with Anonymous, and they, they produce a lot of shows, and they were doing True Detective at the time. And he said, like, look, I want to try and set this thing up sort of in the same model. Like, let's get a director, hmm. and let's get an actor, and let's see if we can get some sort of commitment. Um, and, again, never in a million years did we think we would get uh, Steven Soderbergh. I mean, no, it wasn't on our radar. I mean, he was quote unquote retired. There's no version of our, of our life or a career where Steven Soderbergh steps in and goes, <laughs> I'm going to do that, boys. Right. <laughs> like, there's just no reality the, the, where that the, happens. But the one thing I will say is very early on, just in Jack and, and my conversations, we did say, you know, it would be great if we could get someone like Clive Owen. Mm-hmm. Like, that was just in our, in our heads, yeah. um, which was great. I mean, and... Um, uh, so it it got into Michael uh, Sugar. He reps Stephen, and he gave it to him. and And I really, he's like, "Oh, I'm giving it to Soderbergh." I'm like, "Okay, but that's, that's nice." I mean, right. like maybe we'll get a nice email that says, "Like, hey, great script," and we can put it up on our walls. <laughs> um, I mean, again, never expecting him to like it, and especially never expecting him to commit to doing not one but ultimately two whole seasons of the show Um, but once he dug in um, you know as to quote Stephen he said you know he got lit up you know because it hit on everything that he was interested in we just happened to all be interested in the same stuff Hmm. you know and um, and he'd never seen a medical show written that way and he knew that the foundation of doing a medical show is like it's you know, it's the bedrock of TV. You know, it, it just—it's bulletproof. It's just yeah. the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so, but to do it in this fashion um, was a total twist on it, and that's what he loved. That's what he fell in love with. And because the show is about problem solving, and it's not disease mm-hmm. of the week. It's—it's it's how do we solve the fundamental problems? You know, we can't hope to. You know. Uh, Every medical show in the world is about some mystery. I think we're out of diseases at this point that they're, that they're you know, of medical mysteries. But what we love about our show is the medical mystery is, geez, we can't transfuse blood. We don't know why. Yeah. You know, or we, something as simple as, you know, in, 18, in 1884, if you had uh, appendicitis, you died. Mm-hmm. In, by 1890, 92, Every, it was a routine operation. But in that six-year span, everybody had to learn what this, you know, and, and for time immemorial before that, every single person pretty much died from this one thing. So it was such a simple fix. But that simple fix had to be figured out. And this idea that somehow we're smarter. You know, I, there's so many doctors who love the show, and every doctor I meet is like, oh, my God, I love the Nick. And, and it's like, and they, have, and they wholeheartedly admit that these guys were just as smart as the doctors today. They just, you know, they just didn't, they, they didn't they know didn't have 115 years right, of, exactly. of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and electron microscopes. So, so how do you keep it from being about, look what we didn't know, or how quaint was this, or how terrible was this? Uh, not just in the medical stuff, Although that seems like a good jumping-off point, but in so much of it, in the social aspect, and in you know any of that, you cling to the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was our sort of our mantra going in was just like we just got to tell the tell the just the down dirty truth of the whole thing, and I think that that really helped keep it from being what you say. I mean, being just trivializing any of it or just being about you know. Um, uh, quaint or anything it, it just said this is this is just the reality of the situation and we I think we tried to by portraying that I think it sort of helped help the drama if that mm-hmm. makes any sense sure oh absolutely and I also think I think there's one moment that we kind of wink in the entire 
two seasons, and I'll take the blame for that one. It's a moment where Thackeray's trying to buy the X-ray machine. And he says, and he says, look, it's a secondhand model. I don't, I don't want to pay full price for it. And who knows how long that that uranium inside? Barrow, not. Oh, Barrow. I'm sorry. Barrow mm-hmm. says, um, how long that uranium inside will last? And I just thought that was one of those things where he was kind of, you know, he was he was negotiating and he was looking for anything he right. could come up. I with. had a bad line too in there, so don't don't. don't <laughs> oh, okay, good. Look, yeah. it fits with the character, but it, it does fit with the, with the character of a guy who's humbling a little bit. And yeah. so, but for us, you know, when you see the racism, you know, the newspaper accounts of the era are so brutal mm-hmm. as to how how African Americans were treated, how immigrants were treated, how immigrants were seen, how people were unabashedly bigoted, they were unabashedly sexist, and that it was a matter of course. So the idea that we would that we would show women somehow all being champions and 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 standing out there leading the people into battle it wasn't the case. There were extraordinary women who did, mm-hmm. who were fighting for women's rights and women's suffrage. But the truth is that most women were subjugated. Most women were in, if they did work, they were in low-paying jobs. They were treated as objects. Um, you know, rape was not only rampant but not prosecuted um, or even investigated. In terms of African Americans, they were tr- they were treated either as beasts or as children. Um, and if you didn't tell the truth of that, then you were doing a disservice not only to what those people went through, you were also letting the people of that era off the hook, and you were forgetting all the incredibly hard work that had to be done between 1900 and today just to get where we are and now. We could have very easily made Thackeray the great progressive. Mm-hmm. He could have said, no, I'm going to hire Algernon Edwards and accept him right away, and, you know, I, I, that's, that, I'm a, you know, a, 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 a a free-thinking man, and and I see things differently, but that wasn't true. I mean, people. I mean, and again, the the, the one of the reasons, and we're not saying that Thackeray is a racist. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is like he's pragmatic. You know, he's saying, look, we bring in a black doctor. It's not good for business. You know, people are not going to be wanting to be treated by him. We're already losing patients. It's only going to make our situation worse. So he's just looking at it from that standpoint. Um, and, and, I, and I think it also goes to the, the idea in this era, and we play it a lot in the second season, is the idea of how fast progress needs to move for some people and how slowly it needs to move for others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can say, you know, we can say it's still today. Well, no, it's too soon for this or too soon for that. And, and the other people are saying, no, it's, it's, it's well past time. And Thackeray just happened to have been the guy who said, look, I, I have no problem with it, but... You know, this isn't my fight right now. I have a lot of other fights to fight. Uh, let me go back and just dig in a little bit on how you guys work together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to ask you to tell your origin story. I work <laughs> with a partner. We're sick of telling it. Um, but how long have you been writing together, and what is your process like? Well, we've been writing together for over 20 years mm-hmm. now, which is crazy for us both to think of that. Um, <laughs> like our, our writing partnership predates both of our marriages. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we really, I mean, the quick version, we really, we, we met in college. We started writing together in college. And then when we both graduated, we both were working in television as, as PAs and writer's assistants. Mm-hmm. And we got our, um, um, we just partnered up. We just, we, we. And we got our paychecks and realized that the guys in the writers room made more money yeah. than we did. And we, um, so we, 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 we partnered up and we, we got our, our first script was our Herman's Head, if you remember that show. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, 
uh, you can find somebody who's downloaded all of them to YouTube right now, so you can find our great episode <laughs> called The Herm of Ipanema. Look no, for the Herm from Ipanema. From Ipanema, Was that's it right. a freelance episode? It was. I was working on the show as a writer's assistant okay. at the time. And, and Whose they, show was that? Um, it was it was Whit Thomas. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Paul Whit and Tony Thomas. Yeah. And the great thing about them was they were always looking for outside writers to come mm-hmm. in. They were always looking to help the writer's assistants move up. Um, they were really extraordinary in that in yeah, that they, they were they were amazing and I love those guys and I, I'm so grateful to them but man their shows were like the cheapest thing ever <laughs> like our, we had we had a scene in ours where Herman's supposed to be on a beach it's literally beige carpet <laughs> oh my god yeah. that's yeah. great except I got a sunburn that day so I don't know man that's how good their production design was um, but uh, I mean again it's also like 1994 so yeah. and that's like what a four camera sitcom was right Absolutely. Right. But um, but we, we worked in sitcom for a long time and then we sort of organically moved over to film and then we um, and then we started moving back to TV and um, uh, and and our writing has shifted over time as well. Like we we started in the same room, like both sitting at the, the computer together and we did everything together. And then then that sort of went from us both sitting next to each other to letting one write a scene while the other literally was playing PlayStation. And um, I think PlayStation might have been a little before. Oh, right. I think we were... Yeah, like, <laughs> we might be before PlayStation. Yeah, it was before PlayStation. <laughs> I don't even like... We were playing... Well, we always had a ritual of after... We would go get lunch. After lunch, we had to, we had to play some sort of game. Yeah. And it was like that really bad... Um, Microsoft Golf for a long time. Yeah, and then we oh played that God. baseball. Remember that that baseball. Yeah, we played baseball. Remember, we'd pitch to each other, and uh, like, and all we do is strike <laughs> out the entire time. Right. Like it was like literally, like we were like one hitters the but entire. What did we like? What system did we use before? I don't remember. Was oh, it? Yeah. Oh, we played like you don't know Jack. Like yeah, that, that, yeah like those really that. bad, you know, computer nineties computer games. Um, so was this after, like, you'd work in the morning and then have lunch and then play games and then work, work in the yeah. afternoon? Yeah, it was yeah. sort of like dessert. Absolutely. Um, yeah. it was Let like your a, brain rest. Yeah, it was like a 20-minute dessert. Um, we are, we've sort of, all through our, our friendship, there's always been, like, a weird video game. Like, we played, we, when we had our offices at Wit Thomas, our second year there, we were very lucky to be put under an overall deal there and really get to learn, and, and we decided to go get an arcade game. And so in our office, we had uh, 720... Degree Skate. 720 Degree Skate, which is an amazing Skate or die. Skate or die. Such a great game. (laughs) And the problem was, we were working 80 hours a week. Literally, we're on like two shows at once there. And it was crazy. But our office, when we come into our office, like exhausted after like 12 hours, and we just find every PA at Whit Thomas, (laughs) because, you know, we were writers at this point. We were out of there. And and we'd find every PA, like, it would turn into like the PA lounge. So, like, literally, we're like, oh, look, guys, we want to be cool and everything. We're like 26, right? (laughs) So, we're literally like, hey, youngins. Uh, can you guys just give us some time? But you know, we we always sort of had our had our sort of geek time. Just to it was either that or we were watching like we would take we, if we didn't play a game we would watch like the Richard Bay show, which was like the cheapest low rent or old show. episodes of Family Feud. That's right. That was great. <laughs> a game show network is used to play. Yeah. It was so good. Family Feud is the. I mean, I mean, that was great. And what else do we watch? Because Richard Dawson was the greatest thing. We watched um, Match Game. Match Game, yeah. Match Game was amazing. Yep. So we we watched all those different games and and things, and we were just goofballs. And we just, we just, I don't know. We were just learning how to write, and we were like just. uh, The one thing we always knew was that that we probably weren't going to get the big break. We weren't going to be on Friends mm-hmm. or Frasier. And, and we knew people. We, like we had friends who were on those shows, and and you know we're so 
we were happy for them, but it was like, yeah, we were always like, fuck, like, what? that's, that's so just what, not going to happen. What that's, were yeah. you guys, were you, so you were under this deal, what were you working on? Were they, did you have on, were you on staff? Did they have you consulting? Yeah, How yeah, did it work? We, we were just, we were just like, we would go around to different shows. I mean, it was like a campus. It was actually mm-hmm. at Sunset Gower, which is like, it, it's nothing like it is today, you know, Sunset Gower's. They've got all the Shonda Rhimes shows, yeah. and I mean, it's like it's like a it's a nice it's a really nice place. I mean, when we worked there, it was like you would be there at two a.m. and you would hear the prostitutes fighting outside on the street. Um, yeah, you'd be driving home at two in the morning, and a pimp would would like literally pull up in a in like a car with like girls hanging out the side, like you know, it was like it was like it was like a rolling enticement. And I'm like, look, dude. <laughs> I, even even like even in the sickest version of my life, I am not going. There's no. I don't know how people are like enticed by that, but I'm just like I almost wanted to follow them and find out who did. And there was always dead rats in the in the um, oh god, oh my god. In, in, in the, uh, uh, the the pipes because you would just it would just Ugh. waft into and, the office. And by the way. It was magic for us because we were we were in our early tw- in our mid twenties. We were writing sitcom. Yeah. We were on shows, and because I mean we were doing well. Um, you know we were good in the room, and we we handed in good drafts, and we were, seemed to be valuable. And so we would kind of move up, and people would, we would want us. They'd want us for a punch up day, or they'd want mm-hmm. us for. And so it was great because we'd be on a staff, and the staffs would be fun, and you were in the writers' room. The the. In the in the in the in the, in the inner, inner sanctum, sanctum yeah. <laughs> and and the thing is, I mean, look, none of the shows really went anywhere. I mean, we were we, we did work half a season on the last season of uh, Empty Nest, which was you know a hit for them, and mm-hmm. and um, but most of the shows just like we shot ten, we shot thirteen, and they died. Yeah, what were some of those? Remind um, me. Well, uh, yeah, we remember them all. <laughs> of course, uh, uh, we they worked, bought our houses. We bought our first houses. What are you we kidding worked, me? We worked on uh, sh- the first one. Our first staff job was a show called Daddy's Girls with uh, Dudley Moore. Um, and uh, but the big the big person to come out of that show was Carrie Russell. Uh, she played the, his young daughter. She was this um, angelic, sweet sixteen-year-old girl. Yeah, and, and we're just both giant fans of the Americans, and we're just like, go Carrie, go Carrie, kill those FBI guys. I still you know? want to call her Phoebe though. Cause I know because that was her character's character. name, and yes, we're very um, method that way. We we worked on um, we did that, and then. Uh, uh, we worked on Empty Nest and uh, really a bunch of shows that never even hit the air mm. over there. One show that got canceled twice in six months. Um, that's right, because it was Wait, on two different was networks. That? Oh my! Uh, it, it was, was on, called Minor Adjustments, and it was originally on NBC. On NBC, got canceled from NBC, and then went over to the U- new UPN. UPN, quote unquote. We go there, <laughs> oh, and no. and and look, we got it. We you know we got uh, ten or ten more episodes out of it or something. That's really and yeah, you know, it was just learning. Every day you're in the room for yeah. 10, 12, 15 hours. You're learning how to write and so, rewrite and yeah, diagnose. So and tell me, that's thrilling. Tell me a little bit about that. So, you know, you say you guys were good in the room. They wanted mm-hmm. you around. What were you learning and what were you emulating? I think what we were learning, um, n- number one, leave your ego at the door was, the, was probably the first mm-hmm. and biggest lesson because, you know, you're going to get shot down, especially in a comedy room. Um, and, uh, and you're not always right. Um, and... I think we've just learned that not the words don't be precious. You know, things change. I mean, there's reasons that they change, and you may not like the reasons, but that's part of the process. That's part of the process and the craft of writing sitcom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just it's just also being prepared. Like you know, yeah, when you yeah. know that you're gonna you're gonna be going into that room the next morning and you're gonna be working on a script, do your homework. Like mm-hmm. go home, look at the script, see what the problems are, come up with answers, and and walk in there because. 
that's the job. That's what we're all there to do. And I think it just made us, I mean, Jack and I, I think, pride ourselves on our discipline, but it made us even more disciplined, I think, because it just, because we had to do it every day for 10 hours a day plus, you know, and um, just doing that over and over and over again just set a standard for us. And I think it was also, the other element was not only leave your ego at the door, but if it's not your show, it's not your voice, it's the voice of your showrunner. And your showrunner and your actors, you're, you're, you're writing to someone else's Vision, mm-hmm. and you have to learn to do that. And, you know, the spec script has kind of gone out of vogue these days, and everybody's writing their own pilot, and everybody's getting it made apparently. But one of the things that I I, I think was really instructive about that time was that you could show that you could ape the the um, the voice of a main character. That you weren't just writing your voice, but you were writing the voice of, even though we never worked on the show, we wrote an episode of, we wrote a spec script of Frasier, or Mm -hmm. we wrote a spec script of Mad About You. That shows how young we are. And, um, And as a result, you learned how to fit into the rhythm and the style, and you learned to do all that. And I think that was really, really important. But I think what Michael says... It goes to even something bigger. Your showrunner and your show have a million problems. They're looking for a teaser. They're looking for a. Uh, they're looking for an, an end credit sequence. They're looking for new story ideas. They're looking for a story idea that they can slot in when when the story tanks at the table. They're looking for a million jokes, and that's the thing I've learned. In, I think in our career is find out what somebody's problems are hmm. and how can I fix them. We would walk into movie meetings and we would see a thousand scripts on the walls. You know, they, they, they put them in a bookcase and they write on the on the spine what, what what the movie is. And you realize they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars to get all these scripts written and none of them have gotten made. But they have an investment in it. They have a, they they're 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 committed to them. They're kind of pregnant. And now, if you can come in and say, hey, what scripts haven't done it for you? What are you looking for? And our first two movies were literally us getting, writing a, a spec feature and getting meetings and going into Disney and Paramount and a few other places and just saying, hey, what do you have that you were never able to really crack? Oh, interesting. And our, and our sitcom history allowed us, even in the room, when they would pitch us the idea, we would start pitching on top of it because yeah. we'd learned to diagnose them so quickly and to pitch on top of it and to be fast, which That's is right. why when, to lump, jumping forward to the Nick, we rewrite on set all day. Mm-hmm. And so there'll be a moment when we'll go, hey, this doesn't work, what, what can we do? And they'll stop everything, and Stephen and everyone and 200 extras will stare and look at us and we'll, it'll be our moment. And people are, oh, what do these guys do? <laughs> you know, besides, you know, I linger by the craft service table an awful lot. But, um, and the answer is, this is where that, that training is so vitally important mm-hmm. that we can solve problems and write on the fly. Mm-hmm. We don't need to go off into a corner. We don't need to, you know, give us an hour and a half and everyone shut down. It's, we will rewrite this on the back of the script now and we will hone the crap out of it and we'll give you something that works mm-hmm. and now our video games are on our phones so it's like so <laughs> much, much more easier, easier. Yeah. exactly um, that's an interesting thing uh, you know to go from all of this room experience to writing movies together mm-hmm. uh, and now taking kind of the combination of that to the Nick right. where you guys are the sole writers. I guess you had, you had one Stephen other Stephen Katz is, our, is right. our co-exec producer. Right. But that's, a, that's no staff. I mean, that's, that's a tiny right. number no, of people. No, we, we call it the brain trust. The brain trust, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really Greg Jacobs, um, Steven Soderbergh, Michael Begler, uh, Michael Sugar, um, me, and Stephen Katz, mm-hmm. uh, and we're really the sort of this little brain trust of 
and and the nice thing is we brain trust each other. So I we, think we really do like what everyone else has to bring yeah, to the table. And I think we really we saw the evidence of that. We saw the evidence of all of our years of training. You know, our you know Malcolm Gladwell ten thousand hours, if you may, uh, come. Uh, all come to fruition when we sat down with Stephen to break the season, hmm. because we once we um, w- once he was on board and Clive was on board. You know, they said to us, Cinemax said, "Okay, well, we're going to order ten. So you have the pilot. You have to do nine more." This was the end of May, and it's like we want to start shooting end of September, and it's like no end of August. Remember, Stephen's first thing was end of August. Well, yeah, okay, <laughs> but um, the. The, the thing is, so we went to New York, and, and Stephen said, okay, let's spend a couple days together, and we'll talk about the show. And Jack and I had a general sense of what we right. wanted to do, and I thought we were going to talk generally, just sort of get a, get, a, get a sense of it. But we walk into Stephen's office, he's got a whiteboard, and he's making ten columns. Oh and it's God. like, oh, <laughs> fuck, like, he really wants to break this thing. And it, was, it really was one of the most incredible... We really did it in close to a day. And it was wow. probably the most incredible day of our writing career. Because not only were we so in sync with him, but it really... It, it called upon everything that we had been trained to do, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, arcing seasons and arcing characters and, and, and hiding things and, 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 and when, to, when to display them, when to put them out, and when to just stop and say, look, this is a standalone. And there were all these wonderful things that we'd sort of learned over the years of, of well, no, a character wouldn't do How does the character drive the scene, not have the scene drive the character? It was all the things that we had honed over so many years. But you're collaborating, in this instance, with someone who has not done television, who has not done 10 episodes He had done K Street, that was it, sure. um, which was an interesting, really interesting show, actually. Um, but, but doesn't have the experience that you guys have, first of all, in doing these things quickly and, right. and bringing them into these, you know, hour-long segments. So how, how was that? Clearly, he was ready for it. <clears throat> well, he, he's the most intense worker I, I think we've ever met. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's, you're, you're not there to talk. You're not there to chatter. You're not. You were there to work. And when you're, when you're working, you're working. And that's how it is on set. That ha- that's how it is in everything. And uh, there's part of it that is just a massive relief because the process is what's so freaking. It's so thrilling. Yeah. This process of inventing and creating is so much fun. And the more intensely and the more focused you are, the more you delve into it, and the more. Courage you get almost in terms of like following the threads that you're going on. Mm-hmm. So it was intimidating in one way because you know he's got his Oscar nominations and Oscars and Palm d'Ors and Sundance Film Festival wins and and you know he's got a real imprimatur and and you know he trusted us and gave us respect and deference and kindness and decency and and well again his ego was checked. You know? He's he's the most collaborative human being I think I've ever met. Yeah, and I think that I, I if I was going to go into his head, I think I think he approached it like a film, like but a ten hour film. Like how do I how do we how do we tell this story? How do we tell a ten hour story? And I think that that just helped him. And I think so. It was a combination of of his his knowledge of how to tell a story, and then our sort of really specific TV knowledge that. Um, that sort of combined to, sure. to, to work together. Awesome. I think there's something else that you learn along the way in all these years of either working with a star in the room or working with a director or working 
in any of these situations, and that is that you have to focus so, I, you know, there was a part, little little part of my head going, oh my God, it's Steven Soderbergh, we're working with Steven Soderbergh, wait, is this show really going to happen? Oh my God, this is so cool. And you have to shut that little motherfucker up, because you have to go, okay, what do I do? What is my, what... This is this is the moment when I have to bring to bear all the things that I've been learning and doing for the last 21, 22 years. And and so what I think part of the training over the time is, you know, you spend a lot of time on sets with famous people, around famous people, pitching to famous people. Or pitching to people who have a really just an elevated status mm-hmm. uh, creatively where you look at and you go, my gosh, if I... You know, I I am so enamored of what you do and your work. And I think what's lovely about when we sat down with him was it was just three guys in a room working. And if, you know, and and we just had all this background information we kept throwing forward Mm -hmm. and going, well, you know, we we talked about doing this. And there was almost it was only one thing he said no to. I I wanted to see in the theater. And he said, there's a universe in which that happens. We're not working in that universe. (laughs) It's too expensive. We're not doing it. Um, but other than that, it was every time there was an idea, you could see the wheels turning as to how he wanted to shoot it, how visually it would mesh. And that's so exciting because yeah. it's not just the words, it's the music. Yeah. Um, were there, as you went from that outline, which I'm sure you know got fleshed out, mm-hmm. to the script, were there particular story challenges in season one, uh, perhaps that you learned from to apply to season two? Tone. Yeah. I would say tone. The one thing that Stephen knows and Greg Jacobs, um, their collaborators and creative partners, they know the movie they're making. They know the tone they want. Mm -hmm. They know know when you've gone over the line and they know when to push it. And I would say that was incredibly instructive. Hmm. Um, You know, just the question of, is that our show? Is this Mm -hmm. our show? Um, and then sometimes I'd go, okay, this might be crazy, but, or Michael would say, this is nuts, but, and you'd go, there's no way, and then suddenly they'd go, yeah, let's do that. Hmm. And you'd show up on the day, and we'd be somewhere, they'd build the set, or you'd have the moment where, you know, whether it's, you know, Thackeray having his penis injected with cocaine, or any of the crazy stuff we do, and you're going, okay, well, if they think that we're still within the tone of the show, all right, man. Um, and that's, to me, was the great, challenge and great lesson and really where I just endlessly deferred to Stephen and Greg. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I was watching, I remember watching Magic Mike 2, which Greg directed and Stephen shot, and it was Magic Mike 1, and I just kept going, my God, these guys know exactly the movie they want to make. Sure. To the point, and they're watching Haywire and going, they knew exactly the version of this kind of movie they wanted to make, and I love the specificity of knowing to the nth degree this is what this is our tone. This is our feeling. This is our vibe. This is what we're making, and I, I found that an inc- like, like almost like a wonderful set of train tracks yeah. that we could stay on. Was it hard for you guys going being so micro, going scene to scene in the scripts to have that overview that maybe Soderbergh could because? You know, he was getting the scripts. I'm sure he's working with you, but still. Yeah, I mean, I think he always told us to keep in mind, to, you know, take the 30,000-foot view of yeah. everything. Like, let's look at this thing, not, you know, don't look, don't get so bogged down in it because we want to look at the whole the whole picture. Um, and I think that we kept sort of taking that lens and, and looking back at it and, and making sure that we weren't, you know, 
<clears throat> that it that it it's it stayed true to what it needed needed to do and what what we knew that we wanted in terms of tone and in terms of making it seem the modernity of it mm-hmm. um which was a very big discussion and a very important aspect of the show um and to just make kind of checking in and and, and applying that now coming into season two which premieres when october 16th all right no that's how that yeah. people remember now yes so oh, two guys say it together october 16th um coming into season two did you feel like you could take bigger risks were there bigger challenges did you feel like you left everything you know on the table or take everything off the table yeah i think initially (laughs) i mean we had a lot of ideas we definitely had a lot of ideas um going into breaking season two but i think that the breaking season two was harder than season one Mm -hmm. i think that it took longer to really sort of hone it and find it um, That's interesting because presumably you knew your characters right. even better right. after season one. But, but I think that we really we wanted to get it right. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we even though we we set all this up, I think it was very important to us to not only not only um, get the characters right, but also to to outdo what we did. Like we want to really step it up I mean, and not repeat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so how do, how do we do that? And so I think we we took a we took more time and we had luxury of more time to do it and to really really ask a lot more questions about the characters and and the choices and is the this the best choice for the show? Is it the most interesting? Um and so we we honed it for for months until we all felt it was it was in the right place mm-hmm. and um <clears throat> so and so we it also gave us a lot more time to write the scripts and the same thing like so we could we we could take our time and but but still you know one of the big things about Stephen and and that we learned and and we had to in in, in writing the first season was we couldn't really second guess ourselves. We had to kind of trust our instincts and trust our guts. And, you know, again, we had a little more time to sort of say like, okay, is this exactly right? But I, I feel like we still applied that. Like, you know, we know what it is. I mean, and Stephen will say it. He'll say like, we're not wrong. Like the, the, the choices that we made are the right choices. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think we're all very proud of the second season. I think we all feel it's stronger than the first season. Right. We all feel like it's it's bolder. Um, I think you'll see that it's it's a bigger show. I mean, it, we really were outside the hospital more. We really get into their lives, but we're also, um, as Jack likes to say, we sort of like paint with a fine brush because we're really getting into the intimacy of these characters mm-hmm. more. And I think those were the discussions that we really wanted to have. Like, what is, who, let's really dig deep into who these people are now. That's great. And, yeah, I think we wanted to show different sides of it. I mean, there were things that were presumed early on in, in the character. Well, who is he here? Who is she there? How did she live? But the second season allows you... You know, the first season was, these are the limitations. Mm-hmm. These are your limitations. If you're a woman in this era, your limitations are, are prescribed for you by the society, whether no matter where you are in the social hierarchy, there are just limits. And if you're African-American, there are just limits. So the first season was really, wow, you are laboring under limits. And the second season, in a lot of ways, is how you decide to push those limits. How you decide, how are we going to break out of what this, what they're telling me I need to be? Okay, I'm stuck here, I'm stuck here, but I can't stay here anymore. And it's, what's the path out and everyone has a very different way of of trying to to rise to the surface and and to get a little air because 
Uh, and I think we love that. But at the same time, you've got this massive gravitational force of Thackeray. And everything revolves around him in so many ways. So how is he? How is he physically? What is he doing to, with, his, with his emotions, but in his medical work, but also with his addiction? And so for us, that was really, it was a giant balancing act. But the, and the other joy was we now knew what our actors could do in such a great broad way um, that I think we felt like, oh, my gosh, this character, we can take him to a really emotional place and, 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 and know that he can do that, man. Wow. And so when we wrote it, we didn't know the actors at all. And now, I mean, we're really friendly with all the actors and really just love them dearly and so being able to write to their strengths has been and and to see and 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 to know that they can move outside of what we already asked them to do Mm -hmm. and that's been a tremendous amount of fun that's really cool that's really cool sounds like people love it it's interesting to play that thematic uh element like that really suggests so much story the the uh pushing pushing out of the boundaries yeah Uh, i think that'll be cool to watch um just to wrap up, we were saying before we started rolling, um, you do not live in this city. People uh, the, always want to hear about this. The city is Los Angeles, where we're currently sitting. <laughs> um, uh, but people always want to hear how they can have a career in movies and television and not live in Los Angeles. Um, it's the, the trick is to spend the first 20 years of your career in Los Angeles. Uh, everyone asks me that. Yeah. Uh, the answer is... You need to be young and stupid and eager and ambitious and ready to work until your fingers fall off the keyboard. Um, and you have to be here to render the services and to meet the people and to do and then to build a reputation mm-hmm. and to build the you know I, I have I now have really wonderful agents and managers and lawyers all of whom are really at the top of the industry but I got all those because I, we all started at the bottom of the industry together and we started in the middle and we we rose and so I would love to tell everyone they can leave and technology will allow you to do a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know how often Michael and I ever hold a physical script. We email everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would say that I would say that it's it's not impossible, but it's not easy. Yeah. Um, you really need to create the foundation of of your career within the industry. And then uh, luckily I was able to to move away um, and and do it. And Michael's been. Um, uh, very patient when I've been away, or yeah. But I fly in. I flew in this course, morning yeah. from Park City, Utah, is where I live. I live in a ski town, you know, where the Sundance Film Festival is. And uh, by the way, in an event I completely ignore every year and just go skiing. But um, uh, you know, for me, I can jump on a plane in the morning, which is what I did. I got here by nine, eight thirty, nine in the morning. Jumped in a rental car. I'm here. We're going to do yeah. another couple things later in the day. I'll jump on a plane. I'll be home. I'll sleep in my bed tonight. And as far as the practicalities, Michael, you were saying you guys will FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, everything is, is is done FaceTime, email. You know, we out when we outline stuff, we we're we're FaceTiming and we're talking stuff through. Mm-hmm. And and then once we're on script, we're we're basically. We're just piggybacking off each other. Mm-hmm. You know, we we work. Well, we tell people that we're a sweatshop. We never close. Like Jack likes to write at night. I like to write in the morning. And so he'll write in the night, and he'll send me what he did. Yeah. I'll open it. That's great. Edit it, then go on, and then he'll edit what I did. And so before, you know, by the time we finish a draft, it's like we're on our fourth draft. That's awesome. Um, so it, it works out. I mean, I don't think I will leave. LA. I'll either live in LA or New York. I mean, that's just going to be, and which I'm very happy to do either. Um, but uh, I, I feel like 
I feel it is important that at least one of us has a presence in one of the major <laughs> cities. <laughs> Though that, that being said, Michael did move as far out of the city to, to you know to a beautiful community where he could <laughs> he could be recently. But um, I also think that um, the industry is changing. Mm-hmm. It is, and people don't even know where you are anymore. Um, cell phones have changed everything. Email has changed everything. The truth is, uh, I could still be living in my house in the valley. And, and not have told anybody. Right. You and, can be on those calls. You can... Right. And when the holograms start happening... <laughs> right. you know, it's all different. Exactly. <laughs> and and it's, it's you know, the, the thing is that we did spend, I mean, we did spend 20 years here. Yeah. And look, and if you're going to render services on a show, you have to be there. I mean, Michael and I moved to New York for four months a year. Um, Michael moves to Brooklyn. I moved to Manhattan. But we both go to the studio. Um, and we, you know, the great news is, though, that because we've written the season beforehand, we can just concentrate on, you know, the upcoming week mm-hmm. and what we're shooting and rewriting that stuff and then being on set. And the great thing was uh, in the, at the end of the first season, we were already breaking second season. So that was really a lot of fun that, yeah. that we, you know, that we were... We're doing that, and HBO. I have to say, uh, HBO slash Cinemax has given us so much freedom and such great notes. And That's great. you know, uh, you know, we we had labored often under maybe some some poorly given notes over the years, or you know, and insecurities, and and all the people who were just trying to cover that. And then, you know, we always see people at the at the Emmys going, "I just want to thank HBO for being the greatest place in the world to work." And you're like, "Oh, fuck you." Keep sucking up. And now I'm like, I don't want to work anywhere else. <laughs> Love me. Keep loving me. Keep making my TV show because I don't want to get any bad notes again. I just want your notes. And so it's been really that the, the level of support we get is 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 incredible. And and so for us, that's been really it's been it's been I don't think there's a version of this. That could be better. Well, do you have a marquee director? Yeah, well, for one episode. No, no, for 20. (laughs) Um, And you're allowed to write whatever you want, and your budgets are really great, and they promote the hell out of it. And, and, oh, is that Clive Owen? And all the sporting actors are kind of awesome. I I don't know... I don't know how we go on in our careers after this. (laughs) I really don't. I was going to ask about that. I mean... This uh, this is a full time job, obviously. But do you have the time, the inclination, or the contractual wherewithal to work on other things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if if the right things come our way, which they things have, um, I mean, I don't think we want call us at five five five. We definitely we we have things that we're working on outside okay. of this, and um, uh, there, again, it, but but now we we we're very grateful that we have the luxury of being. A little more choosy yeah, that absolutely. we can sort of go after things and we're seen in a whole new light that goes yeah. way back to the beginning of this discussion like the things that are being presented to us now are totally different hmm. and which feels great we're and, classy now <laughs> and we get the benefit of the doubt like all these things sure. that we've worked our entire career for are, is happening so we are definitely taking advantage of that we're not just sitting on the nick as being like right. this is it because you know I look at someone like Soderbergh you know that guy just keeps plowing forward, yeah. and he keeps finding the next thing, and 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 um, and I think that's the way we are too, and that's the way in a way we've always had to operate, yeah. because we never got that, we've never had yeah. the Nick experience <laughs> until we've had the Nick experience, so that's just inside of us. Like we just have to keep. If we're not it. working, then we're technically like deeply unemployed. Like if we're not writing something, I get antsy. I even said to Michael sure. the other day we hadn't written something, and I, and I was like, I'm getting antsy. Uh, yeah. 
because, first of all, I, I think we both love what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I, I just think that writers write, and and even and when things even even when things get horrible, like you're on a show when things aren't going well, um, you know, or that's never happened on our show, but on previous shows certainly, or you're on a movie or you're in a, you just put your head down and you do the work. You know, we were on a show where the five people ahead of us on the show, we were young, were all fired or quit in like a week. And we were literally like the highest ranking people on the show when we were like 27. <laughs> and we were like, what is, you know, and just put your head down, do the work. And when things got heady and exciting and you're getting interviewed at Nerdist of all, I mean, we're, at Ner- I mean, I could, I'm, I'm a cocky motherfucker now. I'm a Nerdist. Um, but the same thing applies, which is, oh, wait, there's a premiere or there's a this or this is all so exciting. The show's this or it's premiere. I, we're still working like yeah. every day it's just do the process a bit is so much more fun and it's so much more grounding and it's so humbling once you know, once you think you you have it you don't and if you think you, you've got it nailed you are sorely mistaken so you better put in the same amount of work you put in when you were yeah. a, a staff writer or, or when you thought this is our shot to have a great show you know in first season the nick or third season or tenth season mm-hmm. that's a great attitude uh we'll end as we always do by asking you guys what are you watching on television uh, is there stuff you're getting excited or inspired by, or movies too? I will. I will um, I've been obsessed with Veep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hadn't watched it before, and we would be on set all uh, every day. And I mean, on every Monday we come on, and Stephen be like, "Oh, did you see Veep?" And I'm like, "No, I haven't watched it." So I finally started binging it. I I love it to death. Um, I think it's a, a brilliant show. Um, Jack said, "Like we're both big fans of the Americans." Um, uh, those are like my right now. I, Silicon Valley, I love. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, um, uh, Louis is a big show I love. Um, I can't really think off the top of my head right now. But you, you well, I don't own a television. Answer. I hate those people, don't you? <laughs> I don't own a television. I don't watch TV. Uh, no, I watch obsessively. Um, well, first of all, any car, any show where British people are racing a car, driving a car, or restoring a car, wheeler dealers, I'm in. <laughs> um, so that's the that's the that's the total motor geek in me but um you know uh but for me i'm watching narcos right now which i'm really i'm loving the history of because i'm a history i'm really into the history of that narcos has been really interesting for me i finally you know caught up on a lot of things that i just hadn't been able to because we were working on our own show um my i'm so saddened that nurse jackie i'm the only person who like obsessively i guess keeps saying this but like i literally like i'm saddened there isn't another another uh season of nurse jackie but um you know it's funny the one thing that I'm, i'm binging on is the west wing uh, my, it's so funny. I've heard that a lot lately. It's on. First of all, it's on Netflix. Yep. Everybody. This just, is why you'll love Veep because it's like the the dark comedic version of Westwood. <laughs> I have to say, my my uh, my fourteen year old. He turned fourteen yesterday. We've we we spent the entire summer watching you know two to three episodes of The West Wing, almost trying to do it every day. Mm-hmm. And it is first of all, it's a history lesson like no other because you're, they're referencing the Pentagon Papers and they're referencing you know. Uh, the pull out of you know, Saigon, or the referencing this or that, and so you get this chance to talk about these things with your with your kid, who's now getting this great sense of history. So you get to watch that. I'm watching a lot of Curious George. <laughs> uh, there's an age gap between Michael's kids and my kids. Oh no, but there was a really good one on yesterday. See, George, oh no, go on. Uh, Is it the Sorkin episode. Uh, yeah, oh my wrote? God, like George is just going on. <laughs> 
it's like a 20 minute dialogue you know speech. <laughs> it's a walk and talk with the man with the yellow hat yeah exactly uh, oh my yeah. God, yeah um and George has just got the balloons and at some point you don't realize he's gone um but that's been something that I've been that's really fun. into because and it, it holds up so it really does. unbelievably well I know we're in the golden age of television but uh if we're in the golden age then it started with you know, Botchko and Sorkin and yeah. Tinker and you and, look at, and that, those guys. at that time. I mean, West Wing and NYPD Blue mm-hmm. and X Files. I think mm-hmm. created yeah. the TV we're watching now. Yeah, yeah. I, it's like I, w- I keep wa- waiting for because my an influence one of my favorite shows of all time was Saint Elsewhere. I keep waiting for them. Mm-hmm. I don't know why these shows don't end up on Hulu. It's like, you understand you're making that show. Uh, yeah. yeah, we are. We you are. know yes. that, right? I guess. Uh, I thank you, but um, I, I don't think I could ever make that show. I mean, I really I hold that show in such high regard. But I mean, that DNA is so strong. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah. In I'll, I'll admit it. I'll admit that. <laughs> in, you know, it's in funny. a great way. No, yeah. I mean, yeah we I haven't seen it in a long time. Right. Here's an admission, and it's not. A, it's not throwing shade in any way, shape, or form. Michael and I. I had just had kids when House came on the air, and Michael isn't re- wasn't really like a much of an avid TV watcher, and so everyone's kept saying, "Oh, it's House. Your show is House." And I know so many people who absolutely obsess and love that show, and I'm like, I have to admit, I haven't, I, I really haven't watched yeah. it. I don't think I've, I don't. Th- I watched one episode where a guy turned orange, <laughs> and um, and I remember I didn't watch it until people said it, and I was like, No, this isn't House. this isn't House. Is awesome, but it's not what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and the only thing I remember about that episode was there was an episode of Scrubs where someone also had the same disease where they turned orange from carrots or too much tomato juice or something. Right. But, um, you're making Scrubs. Yeah, Scrubs. That's what you're making. Uh, yeah. But, um, but Scrubs is a show that, that could play both tones. Yeah. And that's what's so – I love seeing a show that can, that, can, that can play that. You know, you go back to L.I. Law and things are incredibly serious, but they're also really funny. Mm-hmm. I love – one of the things we really want to do on our show is you can't be unrelentingly dour. You can't be unrelentingly depressing. Yes. You know, just because there was typhoid doesn't mean people didn't laugh. Yeah. You know, there was also vaudeville. And so people were funny back then. There were, you know – and so we got that's some funny things coming up this season. Congratulations, you guys. Thank uh, you. Once again, season two, October 16th, 16th Friday, yeah. uh, on Cinemax. Check it out. Um, thank you for being here. Yeah, I appreciate our it. Our pleasure. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 